Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. I absolutely love this because, you know, if you own a home, it can be really hard to maintain. It's hard to find people that can help you for a big project or a small. Well, whether it's in everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is answer that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish. Or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps, because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. At Popular Science, we report and write dozens of science and tech stories every week. And while most of the stuff we stumble across makes it into our articles, we also find plenty of weird facts that we just keep around the office. So we figured, why not share those with you? Welcome to The Weirdest Thing I Learned This Week from the editors of Popular Science. I'm Rachel Feltman. I'm Claire Maldarelli. And I'm Sarah Chardosh. So on The Weirdest Thing I Learned This Week, we start by each offering up a little tease about some kind of fact or story that we found in the course of reading, writing, reporting, getting in the holiday spirit. And we decide which one we just absolutely have to hear more about first. Then once we've all had time to spin our little science yarns, we reconvene and decide what the weirdest thing we learned this week actually was. Sarah, what is your tease for your holiday extravaganza fact? My happy, happy holiday fact is about Christmas disease. Great. I love diseases. Wow. Had to do a disease. It's a happy, happy Christmas. (laughs) And uh, Claire, how about you? Yes, I will be talking about something I will never do because I hate the cold, which is the polar bear plunge. Wonderful. Thank you. I will be talking about Elf on the Shelf and how it may be an introduction to dystopian surveillance states for children. These wow. are all bad. Well, I think we have to <laughs> start. Bad, I feel like, like bad, we have to start with Elf on the Shelf. Okay, yeah, for I, sure. Well, I will say that we know our audience, and I don't think any of our weirdos are tuning in being like, ooh, can't wait for some for some holiday cheer. Cute little holiday cheer. <laughs> you get enough holiday cheer elsewhere. Yeah. Do that on your own time. <laughs> go, to a, <laughs> go to a cheerier podcast. This is about <laughs> death and disease. <laughs> We're giving you things to creep out your family about at the yes. table later. So Merry Christmas. Happy Hanukkah bright solstice, etc. Joy to all. Yes. Okay. So <laughs> joy to all. That was so nice. That's what we should Thank all you. say. Joy to all, especially if you like murder. <laughs> so Elf on the Shelf. Earlier, Sarah and I were talking about Elf on the Shelf and how like neither of us had ever really encountered it as children. Yeah, um, I have not either. It, it turns out there's a good have reason you heard for of that. It now? It's a new thing. No. Okay. See, this is like, it's one of, Elf on the Shelf is just one of those things where like People bring it up as if you're definitely supposed to know everything about it. And I don't. I know so few things about it. Yeah. So I learned when I was today years old that it's actually from a 2005 book. Oh. Um, And, like, maybe there may have been some tradition before that. But, like, the, like, Elf on the Shelf that everybody talks about 
and that parents buy is actually just from 2005. So the reason we don't know about it is because we are too old to have been subjected to it as children and too young to have children to subject it to so far. Thank God. So, no offense to Elf on the Shelf. <laughs> <laughs> so I thought maybe it was just like a regional thing, like from these like wholesome Midwestern states. Woo! But, <laughs> but no. So from a Vox.com article by Kelsey McKinney, I got some background on Elf on the Shelf. It was a 2005 book about a little elf that would fly back to the North Pole every night to report on your behavior oh, and then so sneak back into your house. What? And so it would be in a different spot every day watching you. God. So this is like the mechanism by which Santa spies on exactly. us? Exactly. It is Santa's helper that is spying on you throughout the holiday season. I think there are like recommendations for like how early in the quote holiday season you're supposed to put this elf on its shelf. My mom told me that Santa watches me all year round though. Yeah. I mean, See, what's the incentive? <laughs> you just have to like behave in December. Right. Yeah. But it's like it's it's literally watching you and reporting back to Santa. That is so upsetting. And there, there are rules like you, you're supposed to find the elf every day, but you're not allowed to touch it. Oh, you're supposed to find is it. Is he supposed yeah. to be hidden? Because you're supposed to – it's so – parents are supposed to hide it because the elf is supposed to be in a new spot every day. That's how the kids are led to believe that it's like a real Oh, it being. moved. I see. But you're supposed to find it so that then you like confirm that it's there watching you. But then you're not supposed to touch it and you're supposed to behave yourself because the elf is watching you and could oh, be anywhere at any time. There's actually, again, from this Vox.com article, there are Pinterest boards dedicated to, like, finding creative hiding spaces to, like, oh my places God. where your kids will definitely find it. But that it'll be, like, a little bit of a challenge. Of course, that's like, on Pinterest. in the cutlery <laughs> drawer. Or in like, a drawer? How's he supposed to spy on you from a drawer? <laughs> he has um, supervision. Great question. <laughs> elf. Of course, I forgot. So, I mean, you know, one could, could roll their eyes at this for, for several reasons. But there's this idea that's been circulated periodically over the last few years that I find really entertaining, which is that the elf on the shelf is actually like a dangerous message for us to send to children. And so a lot of this goes back to a study by Dr. Laura Elizabeth Pinto and Dr. Selena Nemorin, where they talk about like why the elf on the shelf is this unique mechanism of play with children. So there's lots of research showing that play and make-believe are like really crucial to forming our personalities and like our sense of right and wrong. We play games with rules to learn how to like interact with other people and like all subscribe to one overarching moral construct, which is an important thing to do as an adult in a society where we don't like murder each other for fun, hopefully. Except on the purge. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> So we know that play is very important. And so Drs. Pinto and Nemorin made the argument that the elf on the shelf is this like very unique play scenario where it blurs the distinction between playtime and real life, where the rules that you're following because of the game, you're supposed to follow all the time. You know, the elf is watching you all the time. So even after you've found the elf for the day and moved on with your day, you're still supposed to be following the rules of the elf which are all of the rules of, like, good behavior, I guess, whatever rules your parents want to blame on Santa <laughs> instead of on, like, <laughs> but, uh, them not wanting saying, you to leave your crap all over the house. Yeah. Um, it's the elf. It's not us. Yeah. And you accept that you're not allowed to touch the doll, and you accept that it's always going to be surveilling you. And so the elf is controlling all parameters of the play. The child doesn't get to do any make-believe or learning on their own. The whole game is that they are allowing this 
doll to dictate their behavior even outside of playtime. They also think that the doll is real, right? I mean, like in normal kids make believe, like they know they're not like whatever the character they think they're playing. But right, like, I feel like. But this is like the parent <laughs> creating this construct for them. So there is like, but the does parents, the kid? The that's absolutely lie. true. It do, it definitely yeah. depends on the kid and the parent. But like, this doesn't even feel like a game. I'm sure there are lots of parents. Yeah, it just feels like Big Brother. <laughs> yeah, this I, is well, just <laughs> we're getting there. Yeah. So there are lots of. I'm sure there are lots of parents who do this with like a wink and a nudge that it, are like, this is just our fun reminder that you have to behave yourself. Oh, okay. But also, there are definitely little kids who believe yeah. this because there are little kids who believe in Santa Claus yeah. and how is it any more ridiculous for them to believe that oh my god I yeah. just got really worried that maybe um, we're about to ruin Santa for people yeah yeah well my ex's <laughs> disclaimer. little sister believed in Santa for so long and his parents were just like perpetuating it they were like we can't tell her it's like she's 13 you gotta let her <laughs> move on yeah thir- 13 is too much so Drs. Pinto and Nemorin make the argument that this is reminiscent of the Panopticon. Do you guys know what the Panopticon is? No. Okay. So it actually features a former Weirdest Thing legend, Jeremy Bentham, who was the guy who got taxidermied. Oh, gosh. Him. Yeah. Oh, my God. I've seen his taxidermied <laughs> face. Ugh. I think. He was the one who's at – he's on display in New York. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I saw him. He was um, upsetting. Wait, so, where in New York? <laughs> at the MoMA that's – not no the Met that's not the Met the Met Brower. Mm. Mm. So he also had some upsetting ideas in addition to now being an upsetting stuffed corpse. In the 18th century, he designed a model for a prison where you would have this central tower where a single guard would be inside. Oh, I know this. Yeah, and then it was surrounded by like a circular structure of cells, like a rotunda. Isn't that also the Eastern State Penitentiary? The way that's. A lot of prisons were like use this as a jumping off point, mm-hmm. and it's kind of debatable whether they actually accomplished the thing that Bentham oh, was see. trying to accomplish. But it it became really pervasive in like the way we think about prisons, even if they weren't literally copying his design. But his like ideal, his like platonic prison ideal, was that there would just be literally one guard in this one tower, and then you could have hundreds of prisoners surrounding them. But you would backlight the tower. So that none of the prisoners could ever tell if the guard was facing them. Mm. So at any moment, they could you be looking could at you. have a guard looking at you, but you would never know. So Bentham argued that in prison with this design, prisoners would just have an incentive to always follow the rules and always behave admirably. What a, what a beautiful dream. Right? <laughs> right. Well, and then in 1979, a lot of people know about the Panopticon not because of Bentham's like actual push to get prisons made this way, but because of Foucault talking about the Panopticon. So philosopher Foucault, who a lot more people know about now that the good place is a wonderful thing. So Foucault argued that this was a good metaphor for, like, the modern surveillance state. And a lot of people say that, like, CCTV cameras are essentially the same as the panopticon because no one can actually be sitting there monitoring an entire screen of cameras but they literally all at once but they could be watching you so having cameras everywhere like and people knowing you know those signs that say like this store is monitored you're incentivized to behave even though you have no proof that anyone is watching you at that time because if it's always possible that someone is watching you maybe 
you'll just always act like someone is watching you. So people put like those protector signs in front of their lawn saying that it's protected by whoever. Yeah. But just the sign really is just an incentive. It's a disincentive. Yeah. yeah. And you're like, you don't want to be wrong about calling exactly. their bluff. Yeah. This and, also, sorry to interrupt, but no, this also reminds me of, okay, you know that quote in like elementary school classrooms that was like, your character is what you do when no one's watching. <laughs> I don't think we me. have that exact quote, but yeah, Something that's like pretty, it. pretty haunting. Yeah. Yeah. It really used to get me. I oh, remember that. <laughs> well, and that plays into this idea called panoptic performativity, which is when people are trying to comply so that they pass inspection, but not because they actually care about the rules they're following. So the thing is that, like, even if it works, it creates this kind of moral and philosophical conundrum where it's like, are you actually creating a society of good people or just a society of, like, scared, law-abiding people? And so... I mean, does it matter? Well, hmm. I, mm, I get that's the big question, Sarah. <laughs> I was I was a philosophy major in college. <laughs> well, and so then that circles back around to the elf on the shelf. You have this potential conundrum, according to researchers like Pinto and Namorin, where kids are being taught that you should behave a certain way because someone is watching you who might catch you. So on the one hand, you're like, are you actually teaching your kids to behave well? for good reasons, which is like, are you creating lasting, like, moral lessons for them? Or is the only lesson they're learning that, like, they're not going to get presents if they don't behave well? Yeah, I mean, you're definitely not teaching your kids morality, though, You're, like, for sure just teaching them, like, we could be watching, so you better behave for the limited period when the elf on the shelf is on the shelf. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's what's so great about Santa, because you never see him, but... (laughs) He's supposedly always watching, but you never actually see it. Whereas the elf is just like sitting there staring at you all the time. So scary. Here's my question. Like, did either of you believe in Santa? I I definitely like for a time. Did you behave any better because you believed in Santa? Yeah, for sure. I like before the week before Christmas. My parents. Yeah. (laughs) They they didn't need Santa. I was super neurotic. I used to think about it all the time. Interesting. Yeah. I like never. That's just me. And yeah. I always used to leave a note, like, for Santa. I, well, I guess I did this twice, I remember, being like, was I good? And then whoever one of my parents would circle yes. Aww. That's so <laughs> cute. Oh, my God. Wow. Okay, I always wondered this because, like, my parents were always so wink, wink, nudge, nudge that I never really, like, bought into Santa. So I don't really know what it was like to be, like, behaving yeah. better for Santa. I was always just like, ah, Santa's... Just yeah. mom. Uh, we definitely transitioned from truly believing to wink, wink, nudge, nudge, like, so early. Yeah. Especially because my, my sister was three years older than me. So if she stopped really believing when she was, like, six, I kind I stopped really believing when I was, like, three. Cause yeah. The, I definitely remember having a couple conversations with her where I was like, but what if she's wrong? <laughs> um, but also, like, I just behaved myself. I was, like, not a cool kid. I just yeah, did what I was told me to I do. I was extremely uncool. I just... I just was a goody two-shoes. Yes, I didn't need Santa. And then, like, the other issue that is really fascinating is this idea that a few researchers have, have brought up over the last few years that by imposing the elf on the shelf on children, we may be actually, like, priming them to accept the surveillance state, 
Which, like, my follow-up is, like, I don't know if we need any priming to accept the surveillance state. I was going to say, like, kids talk to their, embraced it. <laughs> kids talk to their Amazon Alexas, like, the, yeah. the surveillance state is here, and yeah. it is your home assistant. So, for listeners who haven't done much thinking about this before, the idea of the, uh, you know, panopticon surveillance state is that all of our data is potentially being monitored all the time. We have these phones that for all we know could be listening into us and we have speakers in our home that are definitely on occasion listening into us and we have governments with varying degrees of ability to legally monitor our activity and varying degrees of possibly doing it anyway <laughs> <laughs> willingness to bend the rules yes so really anyone who is living a digital life in any fashion has to assume there is some amount of like people can tell what you're doing and the question is, is that okay? Is that acceptable? And also, how does that change our behavior? Because it kind of, there's this like pervasive argument that if you're not doing anything wrong, you have nothing to worry about. But then it's like, who gets to decide what's wrong? These are such great discussion topics for your Christmas get together when you <laughs> yes. when you don't know what to talk to your family about, especially discuss. if you see an elf on the fucking shelf. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so one thing that I want to kind of circle back to to wrap this up in a Christmassy fashion is that like it's only really in recent history of the like mainstream Christmas experience that Santa has been like a pretty wholesome, benevolent character. Obviously, we know he sees us when we're sleeping. He knows when we're awake, blah, blah, blah. We know we have to be good. But like, it's all about whether you get good presents or not. It's not like there's a punishment if you're bad. Except for coal in your stocking. Yeah. Right. But that's just like a lack of present. Yeah. It's not like you're you're being seriously punished. punished. And the thing is that if you look into other Christmas celebration norms from around the world, especially in places where it's cold and dark and people love scaring their children. That is just not the case. Santa has always been a complex figure who may dole out punishment along with reward, or he has helpers to do it for him. I have some examples. So the classic, of course, is Krampus, who has been the subject of several wonderful dark comedy movies in recent years. He's a German demon who hangs out with Santa. They're friends. That's what a lot of people don't know. And he actually, Santa, like, sends him out ahead of time for Krampusnacht to give him a head start because, like, Santa doesn't want to deal with the bad kids. Totally. So he sends Krampus ahead, and Krampus either beats or boils the naughty kids, depending on how bad they were. Now, see, that's motivation. This sounds like something made up by Dwight Schrute. Well, yes. Doesn't my next one is the southwestern German Belschnickel. Okay. That's the <laughs> one. Which was featured on The Office by Dwight Schrute, who decided to determine whether his coworkers had been impish or admirable over the last year. <laughs> but Belschnickel is one of the, like, combination Santa characters. I guess he's, like, your economy character if you— don't have time to make your kids believe in, like, five different Santa helpers. So this is, like, a southwestern German Santa figure that carries a sack of goodies, but also a switch to beat bad children. I love that German efficiency. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and in Iceland, we had Grilla, a, a giantess, with a band of sons called the Yule Lads, which is the scariest thing I've ever wow. heard. It's like SantaCon. Cool. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> the 13 Yule Lads. And the Yule Lads were just, like, mischievous. They would just, like, mess around with everybody's stuff. It was kind of like— um, She sounds better than Santa, though. Right. Except Grilla would 
show up at Christmas to throw naughty children into a sack and boil them alive. There was a lot of the <laughs> oh sack boiling. was often What's used the for catching I'm the so children and boiling. I'm going to dress up as Grilla for Halloween. <laughs> with, yeah, can I, how many Yule lads do I need? <laughs> 13. 13. All right. Also, That'll be a little hard, in, but... In some of the myths, there's also a cat that eats children that's part of... I already have a cat. She's very grumpy. That's fine. I can do this. Then also in Germany and Austria, there was Frau Perchta, who would slit your belly open if you'd been bad and replace your organs with garbage. Okay. All right. That's fun. That's awful, Um, but somewhat creative. (laughs) And so, like, what do all these places have in common? They're all places where fairy tales were designed to make children follow rules. They were kind of like the OG elf on the shelf. So... A lot of people love to point out that, like, Disney-fied fairy tales are so much lighter than the ones that the Brothers Grimm wrote down when they famously collected a bunch of the folklore that had existed for years and years and years. But the Brothers Grimm actually made the fairy tales nicer. They were darker before then. They, like, part of what they did to help popularize them was to tone them down a little bit. And in a lot of the regions I have just listed— namely Germany, but other other countries as well. You know, dark, cold places where you need your children to behave in the winter when there's not a lot of food and people need to just, like, shut up and do their jobs. They, you know, would tell fairy tales with really, like, scary figures that would, like, get you if you were bad. The moral of, like, every fairy tale was like, and this is what happens when you don't do what's right. And so it was really like a creating this impending sense of potential retribution for children. So all of this is to say that the elf on the shelf may be new, but the idea of a scary Christmas antihero who might boil you alive if you don't behave is not new at all. And maybe we just need to come up with better ways of getting our kids to pick up their laundry. I don't know. <laughs> wow. I'm going to teach my kids about Grilla. <laughs> Grilla and her 13-year-old lads. <laughs> yeah. Or I'll just do all of them, just see which ones stick. Well, in some in some areas, they would have, like, the, like, Santa's companions. They would actually have, like, more than one. Wow. The whole cast of characters. Yeah. Yeah. And there are there are more, but uh, those were just some some highlights for me. All of the people who might boil you beat you, replace your organs with trash <laughs> if you misbehaved. <laughs> Love Frau Perkta. She's the best. No, I am I am a big fan of, of Grilla. Also, just like Krampus. I love that Krampus is friends with Santa. That's the thing that was news to me. I love Krampus, for people who don't know, very, like, horned, devil-looking, you know, Norse Satan man. What does Santa even see in him? <laughs> <laughs> well, Santa's like... I know I can only give gifts to the good kids, but it would just be great if by the time I rolled in, only good kids were left. It would make my job easier. Krampus is a good friend. Yeah. I think that's the moral of the story. Yeah, exactly. Okay, we're going to take a quick break, and then we'll be back with some more facts. Okay, we're back. And Claire, why don't you tell us about Polar bear plunges. Yes, I would love to tell you about polar bear plunges. Winter is one of my favorite hating topics or topics to hate on. All right. So (laughs) every year on New Year's Day, people 
from all over the world, I found, do the, in my opinion, most bizarre and crazy act. They get naked or close to naked and jump into the most nearby lake or ocean into the freezing water. Have you guys ever done it? I've no. never done like a full polar bear plunge, but in on swim team, it was our tradition that when at the first snow, like the first real snow, you went outside in your bathing suit and you had to like roll down this hill outside Gosh. in the snow in your bathing suit. Then you got to run back in, jump in the pool. It felt really warm. Wait, is that true? Really? Yeah, like it's absolutely even true. In high school or in middle school or. Um, I can't believe they make kids do that. I would opt out. <laughs> it was great. I don't mind the cult. Okay, that's cool. It's um, exhilarating, Claire. Yeah. <laughs> you get a rush uh, of adrenaline. No, I, that is what I found. Yeah. So they call it the polar bear plunge. It's super popular. And I would never do it. And I really do think of myself as a tough person. Like, I like to run a lot and do, like, cool, crazy things. But I loathe the cold weather. I probably just need to, like, put warmer clothes on. I recently bought a really warm winter jacket that's uh, Doesn't it make it better? Don't you feel cozy? Yeah, it guarantees me up to negative 20 degrees Fahrenheit. I got it on Black Friday. I'm really proud. But, yeah, so this has always, like, bewildered me why people do this. Like, why would you ever, like, instead of waking up on New Year's Day and sitting in bed and watching Netflix or whatever your favorite activity is, you go outside and go into freezing cold water? with a bunch of your friends. So I looked for the origins of the polar bear plunge, and I found some cool, interesting things that apparently there are these two, like, groups in the United States that both think they are the original polar bear plungers. A classic Mm -hmm. American tale. Yeah, totally. So there's, like, the popular one, which is the Coney Island Polar Bear Club, and they are known as the original polar bear plungers and they are known as the original polar bear plungers and they say that they took their they say that they formed their group in 1903 and they took their first plunge on New Year's Day they still plunge at other times of the day or of the year more on that later but they took their first New Year's Day plunge in 1904 and it was documented in local media because just like now, back then, if you didn't post it, it didn't happen. <laughs> so it's been documented. But another swimming group in Boston might actually have been the first, even though they like seem to not really care that much. They're just like, whatever, we just like to plunge. Um, <laughs> They're in it that's for the very, love of the game. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly. very New York versus Boston. Yeah. Too. <laughs> Boston's like, eh, whatever. <laughs> So according to Boston's local news accounts, this, like, winter swimming was just this, like, popular thing to do in South Boston, and it started as early as 1865, and a group of locals started a club that's sometimes known as the L Street Swimmers, and the L Street Swimmers are mentioned in a local newspaper in Boston that they took their first polar bear plunge on New Year's in 1904 as well. So it's either a tie or... They had been doing it from 1865, but just never were like, we need to tell about they this. They didn't need we the need attention. To popular. Yeah, exactly. So I kind of like these L Street swimmers a little bit better. But what surprises me most about all of these, like, these two teams, and then everyone else who does it in America, is that it's not like they just do it on New Year's. They do it multiple times throughout the year. And the Coney Island Polar Bear Club actually does it every single, like, some hardcore members do it every single Sunday. It's like a Sunday 
ritual. Wow, that's a lot of plunging. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. And they do it because they think that there is these sort of like health benefits from it. So the L Street swimmers, even though they didn't really seem to like the press, there's some like really cool stuff about them. So uh, according to newspaper accounts, they swam in South Boston, usually swam nude or with minimal clothing, and they claimed that swimming and tanning were beneficial to the heart, skin, and circulation and credited the practice with miraculous cures. The belief that winter swimming strengthens the immune system has persisted into the 21st century. And that's definitely true. And they think that it was sort of introduced by European immigrants who also believe that cold water plunges followed by saunas or steam baths were good for one's health. I just don't think that's true. (laughs) Um, And there really hasn't been that many good studies on this. But when I was looking back at this stuff, apparently I've written so many articles in the past, you know, several years that I wrote about this and I didn't even realize I did. So I have all these cool, interesting health facts about the polar bear plunge. From past you. (laughs) From past me. What a gift. Right. The gift that keeps giving. So essentially what happens to your body when you go into, when you plunge, I guess, (laughs) is the word. It's an awkward verb. Yeah, totally. So this this was about, this article from December 2016 was about how, like, you could, because I'm so into, like, diseases and death, apparently, that, like, it's really actually dangerous sometimes to do this like polar bear plunge that so many people do it on New Year's who don't routinely haven't done it before that Mm. it can actually like be detrimental to your health and so just like going through the anatomy of what happens first your body sort of goes into like cold shock which is this involuntary response like you have no control over it so it causes you to inhale like gasping breaths because like as soon as you jump into the water you're just in such shock that you'll Take a deep breath. If you do that while you're underwater, you can literally, like, take in water into your lungs and mm. drown. So there's one bad thing that can happen. And then if you survive that, then the cold shock response is followed by the diving reflex, which is actually kind of cool. Extremely cold water causes the blood vessels in the body to constrict, and this helps to maintain heat on the outer part of the body, but also makes it hard for the heart to pump blood to internal organs. In the moment, your body starts to force blood from the limbs to the heart and brain to ensure that vital organs get the blood they need. So that's cool. (laughs) <laughs> is that like any part of the theory of why it might be good for you that it's you're like changing yeah, your totally, blood flow? Totally getting to that. Not really, but we are getting there. Okay, but so this can actually be dangerous though because this increases the workload on the heart and people who like some people might have like even if they're healthy individuals, they may have like underlying heart conditions that they don't know about and then it can be detrimental. Even so, people do it every year. So the question I posed this researcher, Joseph Herrera, the director of sports medicine at Mount Sinai Medical School. And I was like, why do people still do it? And essentially he said that as you jump in, your body releases like all this adrenaline, just Mm. like what you were saying Uh before. Uh Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. In response to the shock of plunging into cold water. So the rush is like definitely real, but there are just no health benefits from doing it other than you feel really good And then you jump out of the cold water and think that 
the cold weather that you're now standing in, which is probably 30 degrees or 20 degrees, is so much warmer than what you just jumped in. And so you're like, I feel this like rush of adrenaline and I'm now warm because I'm not no longer in freezing cold water. I'm just in freezing (laughs) cold air because that's a lot better. So in conclusion... Yes, it's fun for some people, but I feel like I still just I would never get an adrenaline rush. And maybe this is something that's like fundamentally wrong with me. (laughs) Um, But I just have never like gotten a rush from being exposed to cold anything. Like even I think like sometimes like ices or like really cold ice cream is just like a shock to the system. And I'm just like, (laughs) it really stresses me out. So I hope that there's like other people out there like me. I feel like you have a cold hypersensitivity. Maybe. I don't know. Have you, I don't know why I'm asking like you have done this. I feel like also the adrenaline is partly in making yourself do something that you know is going to be uncomfortable, which I actually think you would be familiar with, like, as an athlete, that that would be... I totally understand the cold thing, but for me, that's what it is. It's like, ah, we're all going to go do this thing, and it's going to be, like, kind of painful, but then it'll feel good afterwards. Like, that's the appeal for me. Hmm. Not that I would actually want to get up on New Year's Day and do this, but that was the appeal for me. That's definitely a, a good appeal. I don't know. I guess I feel like during like running I know eventually it's going to be painful but then I guess I do get like adrenaline from running I don't know why I don't get it from the cold I don't know maybe it's just if you're if cold is like really unpleasant to you I understand why it would be just like not because also like when you exercise you get lots of overrides the adrenaline from the cold plunge yeah yeah, I don't think it will ever be for me. But it turns out he told me that, like, the way to minimize your danger. So, like, I don't know, pro tips, I guess. If you want to do the polar bear plunge on New Year's this year and you also want to minimize your risk of death and injury, you can practice it beforehand because your body sort of, like, gets adapted to being outside in the cold, kind of, like, basically Mm. what you're saying, Mm. that it's not as much of, like, a shock to the system and, like, those responses are sort of, like, dulled as you do it more and more. So the people that are actually in these, like, polar bear clubs that do it, do it every single Sunday or whatever, have way less of a risk of having anything happen to them when they do it on New Year's Day. But it's just the people that are like, oh, I'm just going to do this for super fun times, just you know, on New Year's are the ones that are most at risk. Also, I just like wonder, like, what is like, what's the appeal? Like, why on New Year's do we feel like we need to like restart by like jumping into freezing cold (laughs) water? Because the New Year's when you start all your unpleasant commitments, (laughs) I'll lose weight, I'll eat healthier, I'll go to the gym. Yeah. So why this year I'll be the kind of person who can make myself exactly jump into cold water Mm -hmm. and and also, you know, pick up all these other habits. That's true. That's a good point. I I don't think that will work for me. Zero correlation. Yeah, (laughs) but okay. So I'll just end this like fun fact they had and pass around. Hopefully, I'll be able to post this on the internet as well. This is from their newspaper post and it definitely looks like an OG like Instagram post from 1904. This is the L Street swimmers in Boston prepping to (laughs) (laughs) It's great. Sure are a lot of very pale men. Very pale white men. (laughs) Which is frustrating because the L Street swimmers didn't allow women at first into their club until I believe like ten years after they started. So it's all men. Wow. There's some 
real revealing bathing suits here. Yeah, I see bad. some. Well, bare I mean, butts. some. Yeah, <laughs> no, there's plenty of bare butts because, like, the tr- like the real way to do it right, was to go in naked. naked. Yeah, it was like kind of you're like being. How a baby many polar bears you... do you see wearing bathing suits? That's true. It's a great point. There's I, a lot I'm... of what resemble g-strings in here. <laughs> <laughs> This is happy holidays. I think moral of the story, butts. yeah, or just don't polar bear plunge. Just do something else. Watch. See Netflix. your friends' butts in other contexts. Yeah, doesn't have to be the polar bear plunge. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we're gonna take a quick break, and then we'll be back with one more fact. Okay, and we're back. And Sarah, you have some disease and death for us, I believe. I do. The story of Christmas disease begins with a brief history of royal deaths. Um, Oh, good. Starting with poor little Prince Friedrich in 1873, who, much to the chagrin of, like, every parent who ever warned you not to climb on a chair, was climbing on a chair next to an open window when he fell out of it. Oh, no. My God. Classic. Yeah. Died hours later of a brain hemorrhage at age two. Horrifying. In March of 1884, Prince Leopold, thankfully a little older, he was 30, slipped and fell at his villa in Cannes, died of a brain hemorrhage hours later. Prince Heinrich of Prussia, also climbing on a chair, stumbled, hit his head, died of a brain hemorrhage, 1904. Oh my God, it's the brain hemorrhage that's getting <laughs> Lord, me. Lord. Why, I'm sorry, why are they climbing on chairs? Because they were little. There okay. were a couple. He I'm was sure four. you climbed on chairs when you Didn't were you little, ever, Jess. Like, climb on a I chair? resent that. <laughs> Didn't no, you I probably climb did. climb on a chair and your parents were like, don't climb on a chair, you'll fall and hit your head? I probably fell and hit my head because I can't remember. Yeah. <laughs> Lord Mountbatten died of hip complications, of not hip complications, complications from a hip surgery, April 1922. Mm. Then between 1928 and 1938, Prince Rupert, Infante Alfonso, and Infante Gonzalo all got into car accidents and died from internal bleeding. And then, maybe the strangest one of all, in 1945, Prince Valdemar, I'm sure I'm not saying that right, he was German, and his wife were retreating from the invading Russian army, and he needed a sudden blood transfusion. He made it all the way to Bavaria from the Czech Republic, but the next day, the American army invaded towards the end of the war, diverted all the medical resources to treat concentration camp victims, and Prince Valdemar couldn't get his transfusion that he needed, and he died. Ugh, the bad thing that, timing, dude. Yep. Terrible timing. A little hard to have sympathy for him, <clears throat> <Yeah>. but still <laughs> unfortunate. <laughs> but the thing all these men have in common is that they were all related to Queen Victoria. Her daughters, Princess Alice and Princess Beatrice, married royals from other countries, and then those children married other royals from other countries, and the result is that they spread a rare genetic mutation that causes Christmas disease, which we now know as hemophilia B. Oh, fun. Isn't it? Mm -hmm. So hemophilia, if you don't know, it's actually like a sort of a group of disorders where you basically don't have specific blood factors. They are literally called factors. And your blood doesn't clot properly, which means that small accidents like falling off of chairs um, and the fairly minor car accidents that those other men died of can cause you to bleed out oftentimes Mm. in your brain because that is fatal. Yeah, because aren't brain hemorrhages usually like really rare? They are because you have to hit your head really hard usually unless you have hemophilia. Mm. And then unfortunately back in the day you found out by dying. (laughs) But yeah, hemophilia, there's like, there there are three types, but really there's two main types, A and B, but they're both inherited by a genetic mutation on the X chromosome. 
So women having two X chromosomes are only ever carriers. They don't ever have like a oh. severe form of hemophilia because the gene, the functioning gene on your other X chromosome makes enough of the clotting factor and you don't just have one clotting factor, you have several. So women are carriers like Queen Victoria, but only men get the serious form that kills you because they only have one X chromosome. So in the 19th and 20th centuries, we didn't know it as Christmas disease. They called it the royal disease because all these royals died famously. (laughs) (laughs) But like several physicians had definitely figured out sort of the general idea because it's such an intense phenotype, like probably half of the men in your family die from really seemingly small accidents or they bleed really easily. Like every time they get a cut, they just like can't stop bleeding seemingly. So there were like several other families who were not royal who various physicians figured out but didn't have like the resources to understand that it was necessarily genetic or like why it was only the men. Mm-hmm. We actually only figured out that the the royals had hemophilia B because some of Alexei Romanov's bones got analyzed. Mm. Uh, there was some DNA left over. And so they were able to determine that it was actually hemophilia B specifically. Previously, it was like always just theorized that they all had this form of hemophilia. And they think that Queen Victoria like got a spontaneous mutation. Like yeah. her father didn't have it. And it's really unlikely that her mother had an affair with a man who had it. What an iconoclast. Yeah. So yeah. she just like <laughs> literally she just got this random mutation. And then because... She was royal. She just, like, happened to pass it to all these people from all these different countries. It was also wild. Also because she had a lot of kids. Yeah, they just... Because they... Repped them out. They, yeah. <laughs> yeah. They out. sure <laughs> loved each other. Yeah. yeah. So. She popped them out all the time. Um, Which is very impressive, considering she was a queen and did a lot. Yeah. That's what always gets to me about Victoria. Is like they had like what fourteen kids? Fourteen. I want to say fourteen. Like God. And like he also died <clears throat> fairly young. He was like in his forties. So granted, like her childbearing years were probably just about over anyway. But like they didn't get a lot of extra time. <laughs> a, lot of, a lot of childbearing years. Yeah, she was like an active queen. She was not just like a figurehead. And I'm just like she was pregnant all the time. Yeah, I mean, fourteen kids. You have to be pregnant. Talk about all the leaning time. in. <laughs> <laughs> That's she all. She really did her part. That's all to say. She really, she really did her part to just like send hemophilia all across the continent. Okay, it is actually nine children, but it's nine children in the span of like seventeen years. So she was still popping them out pretty fast. Yeah, I I maintain that like for a uh, a woman overseeing uh, an empire dubious as as that may be as as a career choice, <laughs> that's it's just a lot. Yeah, I it's can't imagine being pregnant for a decade, and that was my only job. <laughs> <laughs> Just to be pregnant. <laughs> now none of the royals seem to have it. It seems to have died out. So that's somewhat good news By for falling off of chairs. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, true, though, because, like, some of, the, uh, some of the people I was researching, like, died, like, in their 30s or, like, even in their 20s or, tragically, as small children. So, like, if you die before you pass it on. Dies out with you. What happens if you have it, like, nowadays? Are there treatments for it? Or Great question. Not that I think I have it or anything. You, <laughs> you would you would you really, would, really know, I promise. I would know. Yeah, yeah. You would know. I'm pretty know. sure I was tested for it. I'm pretty positive. But I'm also, negative. like, you would know because men in your family would have definitely 
definitely had problems. Like, you would know. Okay, I would know. I'm good. You would know, I promise. Thank you. Okay, so hemophilia got sort of named and identified in the early 1800s, but they didn't recognize it as two, really three, but the third is like, it's We're not, it's not the same. It. It's so rare. <laughs> it didn't get identified as separate diseases until the 1940s and 50s, which is where the Christmas thing comes in. It has nothing to do I with to Christmas the holiday. What? Nothing. It was named okay. for a boy named Stephen Christmas. What? <laughs> I want my last name to be Christmas. I know. His name is Stephen Christmas. He is a two-year-old at the time, and he got taken to the Hospital for Sick Children, which has long been my favorite hospital name because <laughs> I it's know, so direct. That, that used to be so popular. <laughs> the Hospital for, for Sick, sick children. children. I love it. And, yeah, his blood led to the discovery that hemophilia B was distinct because they used to have this test basically – where if you had, like, a suspected hemophiliac patient, you could take the sample of their blood and add, like, known normal blood. And if the clotting time decreases, like, if it clots faster, then you know that they have some form of hemophilia. Oh, I see. Mm. But with Christmas, Mr. Christmas, and six Young other... Master Christmas. <laughs> yes. Um, and six others <laughs> who were identified in this academic article... They found that you could add hemophiliac blood samples to each other, and the clotting time sped up. And that was because hemophilia B and hemophilia A, you're deficient in two different clotting factors. So if you combine Uh, them, you end up with a set, a complete set of clotting factors. So it improves each other. Exactly. For a while, there was not any kind of treatment. You basically just, like, had to be very careful with yourself. Tried not to fall. Yeah, Yeah. and you, like, needed to get regular transfusions because you were, like, liable to lose blood a lot. But in the 60s and 70s, we discovered a way to isolate the clotting factors. And so you can now treat hemophilia by having, like, regular injections of the factors. Like, you can't make people produce them on their own yet. Like, there's gene therapy investigation about that. But you can now get regular injections of it. Unfortunately, in the 70s and 80s, there were a lot of hemophiliacs who got infected with hepatitis C and HIV Mm. from Mm. contaminated blood products because we didn't know we should be testing for those things. Unfortunately, that includes Stephen Christmas. He he ended up dying of AIDS because he got HIV from a a blood transfusion. I know. It's a little tragic, but... Merry Christmas from the podcast. <laughs> wow, I really didn't. I didn't think we were gonna circle back to the AIDS crisis, but no, that's your little Christmas here surprise. We are. I, don't know I'm, I don't know why I'm saying Christmas so much. Two of us are Jewish. But. <laughs> I'm well. I'm from um, an interfaith household, so we had like a Hanukkah bush. Did you we really? do Christmas, yeah. Because I do both. Like I do Hanukkah and yeah, Christmas, we we do both as well. But just not the Hanukkah really bush was more of either. a like joke. That's cute. I, I like it. Yeah, it's nice. Was it like what a living a Hanukkah bush? bush? Yeah. No, it was just a Christmas tree. We would just oh, call just it our Hanukkah it. bush. Oh, I love that. Oh. We just had menorahs, mm. which are a little less exciting. For it's really honest. doing both is really ideal. It's great because also you really extend that. Like this year is not ideal because Hanukkah falls right before, like basically mm-hmm. over Christmas. Right. But in many years, you just get to extend the gift giving. Yeah. yeah. Well, and the thing is, like Hanukkah is really not a big deal as a holiday, which no. like any any Jew will will tell you. But it's been kind of slotted in as like a pseudo Christmas because of like how commercial Christmas is and how it's everywhere. Like kids need their presents, so you gotta you gotta make that work. But plus uh, latkes, that's right. Latkes, excellent. But the thing is that it's like it's not much of a holiday. So really, it's ideal to do both at once. It is. It's great. You get your deli donuts and your latkes, but you also have like a a real present holiday. (laughs) 
which Hanukkah <laughs> is <on>. not. <laughs> real yeah. holiday with real presents. <laughs> yeah. They're both good. It's yeah. Good. All, any all. holiday is good. And like, I think it's really wonderful how many holidays there are that fall around this time because of our like desperate need to celebrate in the middle of the dark and the cold. Yeah, I think yeah, that's by nice plunging tradition. into the ocean. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Claire is still scarred. <laughs> well, weirdos, however you are spending this holiday, whether you are celebrating one or several religious occasions, or if you're just buying presents, if you're just eating Chinese food, if you're just watching Netflix, if you're jumping into some cold water, we hope you have a wonderful season and a great new year. We are going to take a little bit of a hiatus after this bonus episode. Uh, We will be back on January 15th. We will have some great episodes for you. The season is far from over and you have a lot to look forward to. Thank you so much for sticking with us so far. And as always, tweet us at weirdest underscore thing. If you want to get in touch, you can leave us a voice message. You can leave us a Apple review. We would love that. That would be a super great Christmaka present to us. And we'll see you soon. Thanks for listening. The Weirdest Thing I Learned This Week is a popular science podcast. We're available on all major podcast platforms, so subscribe wherever you're listening now. And if you like what you hear, please rate and review us on iTunes. It helps other weirdos find the show. You can buy our merch, including Weirdest Thing t-shirts, tote bags, and mugs at popside.threadless.com. Our show is produced by all of our hosts, including me, Rachel Feltman, and our editors, Jess Bodie and Jason Letterman. Our theme music is by Billy Cadden. If you have questions, suggestions, or weird stories to share, tweet us at weirdest under thing. Thanks for listening, weirdos. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. I absolutely love this because you know, if you own a home, it can be really hard to maintain. It's hard to find people that can help you for a big project or a small. Well, whether it's in everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps, because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.